Welcome to the latest episode of the Modern Slavery Pack podcast. I am Jakub Sobik, I'm a communications director at the Modern Slavery and Human Rights Policy and Evidence Center, or the Modern Slavery Pack for short. The Modern Slavery Pack was created to enhance the understanding of modern slavery and transform the effectiveness of laws and policies designed to address it. We are funded and actively supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council on behalf of UK Research and Innovation. On 14th September, the European Commission proposed to prohibit products made with forced labor on the EU market. So, in today's podcast, we're going to talk forced labor import bans. In the first part, we're going to talk specifically about the EU proposal to Sofia Gonzalez de Aguinaga from the Bingham Center, who is a Modern Slavery PEC research fellow focusing on business supply chains. In the second part, I'm going to invite my colleague from the Modern Slavery PEC, Owen Johnston, to talk about what evidence says about the effectiveness of forced labor input bans in general. I hope you enjoy both conversations. The European Commission has put forward a proposal for legislation that would ban the products made with the use of forced labor from entering the EU market. To talk us through this proposal, how it would work and what it would mean, we have our guest, Dr. Sofia Gonzalez de Aquinaga. She's a research fellow in business, ESG and modern slavery at the Modern Slavery PEC. She's based at the Bingham Center for the Rule of Law, which uh, leads the Modern Slavery PEC. Welcome to the podcast, Sofia. Thank you, Jacob, and well done pronouncing my name. <laughs> uh, first of all, please tell us a little bit about the context in which the proposed legislation comes in. I mean, it's been discussed for some time. Uh, tell us how it, uh, how it came about. Yeah, well, the proposal came, came out on the 14th of, the, of September, so a couple of weeks ago, um, but it came not as a surprise because the president of the European Commission had already announced um, this proposal back in 2021. Um, and it also comes in the context of uh, raising numbers of forced labor uh, victims in the world. Actually, just a couple of days before the uh, publication of this proposal, um, the ILO and Walk Free uh, released their global estimates. Um, so it comes within a context of uh, a lot of work um, before this proposal, including, for example, the um, mandatory human rights and due diligence proposal of the European Commission in February last year, which this year, sorry, that um, requires companies to undertake uh, human rights and environmental due diligence. Right. So, what would uh, uh, what what does the uh, European Commission proposal on uh, forced labor bans? Uh, actually contains exactly? Well, it's a regulation to prohibit the entry of or placing of products into the European market. And what this means is that um, if the competent authorities identify that there's a, a risk or a reasonable um suspicion of forced labor, then they can um, retain the, the products to not allow them into the market. Or if they've already, already been into the market, they can be withdrawn and they should be destroyed as well. 
does that uh, affect products produced across the world or just within the European Union? So it applies. So unlike the uh, unlike the proposal on human rights due diligence, it's not targeted to any specific companies or sectors. So it's based on uh, products and any product that is made inside the EU and that is made for either domestic consumption or to export or any product that goes that attempts to go inside the market, um, inside the EU market. So it's any product that will be available in the EU. Right. So let's imagine there is a suspicion of a product that is uh, being produced with the use of forced labor. What happens then? Uh, who uh, in the first place identifies that product, uh, what authority and uh, what happens next? So the, the main actors in this is obviously the Commission, but um, the member states um, will assign competent authorities to monitor and enforce um, and implement this, uh, this regulation. And also the custom authorities are involved because they would be the ones actually stopping a product coming in uh, or out in case of it being exported. Um, so the process, we can say that is divided into, let's say it's divided into three stages. Hopefully I'm not mistaken, but um, three or four, let's see. So the first one would be like a preliminary phase um, of investigations. So based on the information that a competent authority might have, um, either because some um, civil society organization submitted um, some evidence of forced labor into a specific product, um, or because of a database that they will have with the list of uh, products or countries where there's a high risk of forced labor, then they, they take a risk-based approach and they ask um, companies to show that they have done some sort of um, human right due diligence. So if they have identified, prevented, mitigated, or accounted for any risk of forced labor in their operations and their supply chains. Um, so this is where actually already having human rights diligence practices in place uh, is very advantageous because if the company can show that they have that, then the competent authority wouldn't um, wouldn't actually conduct an investigation because there's proof of um, human rights due diligence. But let's say that a company doesn't have uh, any proof, any evidence of human rights due diligence, and there's a substantiated concern that there's forced labor. Um, in the making of this product. So it's in the making at any stage in the, in the supply chain. Um, then they would carry on and investigate. And what does it mean that they investigate? It means that they can ask uh, the company for specific information on the product, how it was made. So there's actually some requirement of the company to know their suppliers and being able to, to communicate, okay, these are my suppliers, this is where my product was manufactured, distributed, etc. Um, and they could actually even go and carry on checks and inspections. Um, and this includes going outside of the EU. So if it's uh, another country that is trying to import the product, um, competent authorities could go and, and check and inspect um, uh to, to, to confirm if there's a forced labor. And obviously if there's not um, if there's no um, if there's no dissubstantiated concern, then there's no investigation uh, underway. Um, 
So once they investigate, they can determine whether to whether this is you know a breach of of the regulation or not. So if they find that there's actually forced labor, um, then they will uh, prohibit the entry of the product into the EU market. If it is already there, then it has to be withdrawn and destroyed. Um, and if they find that no, there isn't any um, forced labor, then they will, um, uh, you know, they wouldn't do any any uh, withholding of the products or anything. And all the, the the complicated thing of all of this is that it has to be in a system, right? So everyone can communicate uh, because you have to communicate. The competent authorities have to communicate it to the customs. Uh, authorities. So there has to be a lot of coordination. So customs knows, oh, this product actually has been identified by the competent authorities as one under under investigation. So they would have to hold it, withhold it. Right. So they would have to work also with the member countries, custom authorities, uh, or is that uh, uh, kind of EU-wide custom authorities that would deal with it? Yeah, so each each member state would have their competent authorities um, designated, either one or two, and each of them would have to coordinate with their customs, yeah, uh, and, and the EU custom authorities. So if there was an invest- investigation that confirmed that there was forced labor used in the production of the product, would there be additional penalty for business apart from the ban itself? No, there wouldn't be an additional penalty but if the businesses did not comply with a decision made by the competent authority, then these would have the power to implement a penalty, but it would be for non-compliance with the decision. For example, the decision of having to withdraw the product from the market if it had already um, been inside the EU market or to uh, dispose of the product. Right, and would that be imposed by the, on the European Union level or by uh, individual member states? The member states would decide and they have to communicate this to the Commission, what the rules for the penalties would be. And the member states would give the power to the competent authorities to apply them. What has been the first? Uh, what have been the first reactions to it? Uh, let's look first at what uh, it could mean for preventing forced labor, uh, which is what it's designed for. Uh, what have the um, civil society organizations, for example, looking at that issue, uh, say and comment? And what have uh, other experts uh, kind of said, uh, commenting on the on the proposal? In general, the proposal is uh, is very well welcomed because um, there's um, the need for more instruments to prevent uh, forced labor. But there's also been um, the acknowledgement of certain weaknesses in the in the regulation. So, for example, um, that it doesn't really address any remediation. So, as I've been saying, you know, they find that a product has been made with forced labor, but there's no remediation, mention of remedi- remediation at all in the regulation. It's just all about what to do with the product. So, yeah, say, if, if there is a product found, well, the use of forced labor have been found uh, in the product, but there is no action 
in regards to remedy the the workers who have actually been forced exactly. to carry out uh, labor to produce that um, that that product. Exactly, exactly. The, the the regulation doesn't mention anything about remediating uh, to to workers, remediation to workers. So that's that's been one of the main criticisms. What are the chances of of this legislation actually uh, preventing forced labor then? Well, just before uh, answering that question, I just wanted to say that um, also checking. So this regulation was um, before it was published. It was uh, consulted, so there was a stakeholder consultation. And there's quite a variety of actors being consulted, but none of them are actual uh, victims. So there's no um, input from people with lived experience. So just to um, uh, build up on my on my previous um, comment. Um, so now answering to your question. So this is uh, this is the main question, right? Like, will I will it actually prevent forced labor? That is a big yeah, that's a big question to which I don't have a specific answer, but I will tell you two things. So first, uh, this regulation comes uh, without having undertaking, undertaken uh, an impact um, um, assessment. I don't remember how they call it. I think they call it like impact assessment. So this means that um, there's no evidence that it will work. Um, and actually, the Modern Slavery and Human Rights Policy and Evidence Center recently uh, published a, um, a policy brief on the effectiveness of um, forced labor import bans. And we know that there's actually not sufficient, sufficient evidence to say whether it's effective um, or not at preventing uh, forced labor. So as you can see, we don't really know if it will be effective and there was not an impact assessment undertaken for this specific regulation. And something that that uh, policy brief also states is that the broader the scope of the, of the import ban, the more likely there would be unintended consequences. And the, the scope of this uh, ban is quite, quite uh, wide. So it would be interesting uh, once in, in place what happens. Yeah, so it will be interesting to look at uh, look back at that in a few years' time to see how it worked. Uh, one thing that uh, that some NGOs, uh, in particular, have raised is the uh, is the where the burden of investigating uh, false labeling product allegation uh, was placed. On. For example, in the US, there only needs to be a uh, what's called a reasonable suspicion to stop the import of a product, uh, but in this proposal. Uh, there's only talk about uh, confirmation of risk. Is that right? Uh, could you could you explain um, uh, where the difference is? Yeah. So they, like I said, first they have to have a substantiated concern, so a well-founded reason that um, to suspect that the product was made with forced labor. And once they undertake the investigations, they do need sufficient evidence um, to to prove, in a way, yeah, to prove that there's uh, forced forced labor being. Uh, happening, um, which is quite difficult to, quite complex to prove, and in a way, well, it does uh, put all the all the burden of proof into competent authorities. So I, there's also been that criticism of the amount of amount of resources that will be necessary to implement this regulation. What was the reaction of uh, businesses uh, to this proposal? And uh, 
how it can it impact businesses? What will they have to do to prepare to comply with this legislation? So businesses will definitely need to prove that they have taken necessary steps to identify, prevent, mitigate, and account for human uh, rights uh, risks, including forced labor. So they will definitely have to to have the evidence to prove that they have undertaken this due diligence. And in terms of costumes, there's going to be some adjustments because um, costumes right now doesn't receive any information on supply chain. So businesses would also have to provide more specific information to customs on how the product was made. Just the last question, uh, how is it going to work going forward? What's, what's the process? When can we, it, at this stage, it's only a proposal. Uh, what is planned to, uh, in terms of going forward with this legislation? Yeah, well, the proposal will have to be discussed and agreed by the European Parliament. Um, and then it will, um, before it can enter into force, and then 24 months after uh, it enters into force, and it could be, it will be applied. Um, and also, the Commission will work on issuing guidelines to support the um, the member states and also companies. And there will also be an issue of implementation acts. So a few things coming up. Big thanks to Sophia for her time and coming onto the podcast. You can find a lot of her work on the Modern Slavery Pack and on the Bingham Center's website. Now there's going to be a little break. And after the break, we're going to talk to my PEC colleague, Owen Johnston, about how effective input bans actually are. Welcome back to the podcast. In the first part, we talked to Sophia specifically about the proposal for the forced labor import bans for the EU. But how much do we actually know about whether import bans actually work? Are they effective at reducing and preventing forced labor? As Sophia already mentioned, we at the Modern Slavery Pack have already analyzed the available evidence on the effectiveness of the forced labor import bans, and we published the findings in a policy briefing. To talk about the findings of the analysis, we invited one of the authors, the Modern Slavery Pack Partnership Manager, Owen Johnston. Hi, Owen. Hi, Jakob. Thanks for having me. First of all, what are the import bans? So a forced labour import ban normally refers to uh, a law or a policy that allows governments to prevent the importation of a particular product into their country uh, on the grounds that it's suspected that it might have been produced using forced labour in some way. You were looking to check what evidence there is for the forced labor import bans effectiveness. Uh, so what evidence out there is available? I mean, there's a lot of noise about the import bans, but actually there haven't been that many in place. Yeah, that's right. So we're seeing increasing numbers uh, of relevant laws and policies being introduced, but the ones that do exist are generally quite recent or at least have only been used in practice quite recently, so in the last few years. And that means that we don't have a lot of data on how import bans have worked in practice. And there hasn't really been the time for research to take place to fully understand the effectiveness of them. Um, when I think about forced labor input bans, my first thought is that the purpose is to stop forced labor in the produ uh, production of goods. But this is a bit more complicated. And in the analysis, you look at different ways to measure 
the effectiveness of input bans. Uh, could you uh, talk us through that analysis, please? Yeah, that's right. So we wanted to make sure we were clear about what we meant by effectiveness, because it can mean a number of different things. Uh, and import bans are complicated instruments. They can have a number of different types of effects. So obviously, you might be interested, first and foremost, in the actual reduction of forced labor. Uh, among workers who are, are directly within scope of a particular import ban. But then there are also broader or less direct forms of effectiveness that you might be interested in measuring. Uh, so that could be, for example, changes in business policies and practices by businesses that are not directly caught in the scope of an import ban, but perhaps they're in the same sector or the same country, and so they're likely to be affected indirectly. And then you've got things like changes to labor standards by governments in countries that are affected by import bans. It's obviously quite difficult to, uh, to kind of understand if those effects are the direct consequence of a particular import ban. But we wanted to make sure we included those in the policy brief because these instruments are so complicated uh, and so kind of large scale. Right. For the purpose of this conversation, let's keep it simple. And uh, let's focus on the uh, effectiveness of the bans in actually reducing the forced labor. So what does, it, what does the evidence actually say about uh, the effectiveness of the bans in that respect? So as I mentioned, uh, there hasn't been a lot of time for uh, research to be carried out to examine the direct effectiveness of forced labor import bans. But we do have some case studies of individual import bans and how they've been used in practice. And we can see some impacts of those bans. So one case study that we discuss in the policy brief looks at the rubber glove manufacturing industry in Malaysia. There are several big companies in Malaysia that make rubber gloves for all kinds of purposes, including personal protective equipment that get used in the healthcare industry in the UK, US and other countries. In 2020, uh, an import ban was introduced by the, uh, the US against a particular Malaysian glove manufacturer. And that company in response agreed to take steps to improve the accommodation of some of their workers and to refund uh, the recruitment fees that some foreign workers in their factory had paid. So we can see that direct cause, that direct kind of cause and effect relationship between the import ban and those steps that the business took. But at the same time, it's quite difficult to know exactly what the influence of the import ban was relative to some of the other factors that were also uh, relevant at the time. For example, there was a lot of media coverage. There were a lot of NGOs engaged and lobbying on the issue, and there was political interest. And of course, all this was taking place at the time of COVID, when there was a significant increased demand for healthcare products such as rubber gloves, and so a lot more attention on them and how they were manufactured and the risks of forced labor that were attendant on that. And in fact, the Modern Slavery PEC funded a project that looked at forced labor risks in that across that whole sector in Malaysia. And it found that quite a few of the factors, um, the risk factors for forced labor actually got worse in the sector over the course of the, um, the kind of main COVID period. So it's... The point is that it's quite a complex picture. We know the import ban had an impact. We don't know exactly kind of what the importance was of the import ban compared to these other factors. 
Um, and so it's quite difficult also to talk about the longer term effectiveness because it's just such a complicated picture. Yeah, it is a wide uh, it is a wide uh, context that has to be considered, and uh, it, it kind of plays in a wide context of of different factors. Uh, but in the analysis, you you talk about these uh, different um, different contexts and why the consequences uh, that should be considered. What are they? So it's difficult to say for certain, but in the policy brief, we talk about potential wider consequences that import bans could have, both positive ones and negative ones. Um, So as an example, um, if one or two companies in a particular sector are affected by an import ban, possibly other companies in the same sector might try to improve their labour standards uh, because they're afraid that they might be affected by a future import ban. On the other side, uh, you might think that if a company maybe a whole sector is affected by an import ban, that might reduce uh, the profitability of that sector, it might reduce the number of jobs available in that sector, uh, which uh, is obviously a a sort of negative consequence. But it's important to say that these are sort of potential consequences. We really don't know in practice um, what those wider consequences might look like. What factors need to be considered um, by lawmakers and by policymakers in the design and implementation of input bans. You go into that uh, in your analysis in the briefing. We do, yeah. And, and that's because although the term forced labour import ban is used quite a lot, actually in practice it can refer to quite a wide variety of different uh, laws and policies that have different approaches to the same objective. Uh, So you can see an import ban applied to a whole region or a whole sector. Um, Or on the other hand, the power to impose import bans could be delegated to an enforcement agency who can make decisions on a case-by-case basis. And then it might be an individual company subject to an import ban or an individual consignment of goods even. And that's the kind of system we see in the US. Then you've also got questions around what sort of threshold of evidence do you need in order to impose an import ban? Do you need to be reasonably confident or completely confident that forced labour was involved in the production of the goods? Businesses, of course, need to know how they can make sure that they comply with the import ban legislation and that they don't get affected by it. And if they are affected, they need to know if they have any way of challenging the imposition of an import ban to show evidence maybe that a product wasn't made using forced labour. Um, And all of that means there needs to be clarity on who's responsible for monitoring and enforcing the relevant law or policy, because it can be quite a resource intensive process to do that scanning for evidence of potential forced labour and then establishing proof one way or the other of whether it was involved in the production of a particular product. You also discuss uh, some wider factors that could influence if the input ban, uh, whether the, the input ban can, could be effective or not. Uh, would you be able to, to touch on those uh, wider factors? Absolutely. So we discuss a few wider factors in the policy brief. It's important to say there's not a lot of direct evidence about how these factors might affect the effectiveness of an import ban but you can see that they're likely to be quite important. So for example, if an import ban is imposed by several countries acting together, it's probably going to be more effective than just one country acting in isolation because 
those countries together have greater market power. If an import ban is implemented alongside other regulatory instruments, maybe trade or investment instruments, that could increase uh, its effectiveness. If uh, an import ban is, is quite targeted and focused, that might make it easier to gather the evidence required to monitor and enforce it. Uh, but of course, there need to be effective traceability mechanisms in place in order to do that properly. So you can see that the, the way in which an import ban is designed can have quite a big effect on how effective it's likely to be. Yeah, there is a lot to consider. And uh, well, import ban sounds so simple. You just ban the product made with, uh, with the use of forced labor. There is so much more to it. Um, I guess we're going to have a lot of new evidence uh, a few years down the line uh, once the input ban in the EU is implemented. Uh, what next for the uh, for the modern slavery pack in terms of uh, its uh, analysis and research in this in this area? It's a really dynamic area, and in the policy brief, we look at uh, quite a few jurisdictions where there are emerging laws on import bans. And it will be exciting to follow the progress of those laws as they begin to be passed and implemented and see what kind of effect they have. So we'll be definitely keeping a close eye on that. We last updated this policy brief uh, in December 2021. There have been a few key developments recently, so we will be looking at updating it again to reflect those in future. Um, and of course, we're talking now in uh, October 2022, there's lots happening, particularly at the EU level, um, and the next few months will be key to see how those developments pan out. Meanwhile, for us, this was one policy brief in a series of policy briefs that we're publishing, each of which looks at a different set of instruments designed to address modern slavery risk in supply chains. So we published another earlier this year on mandatory human rights due diligence legislation, and we're currently working on one that we'll publish shortly on public procurement uh, as an instrument to address modern slavery risk. So um, lots of work happening. We're, we're really excited to follow developments in this space and continue to try and provide these um, summaries of the available evidence. Yeah, loads happening in this area. Thank you very much, Owen, for your time today. Thanks, Jakob. Big thank you to Sophia and to Owen for their time. You can read our briefing on uh, forced labor input bans on our website at modernslaverypack.org. And you can also find uh, Owen's blog about it in there. Uh, remember to sign up to our regular newsletter and to follow us on social media on Twitter at Slavery Pack and on LinkedIn, where you can just search for the Modern Slavery Pack. That's it for this episode of the Modern Slavery Pack podcast. Thank you for listening and we will speak to you on the next one.